Welcome to the SEO Freelancer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Leroy. Today, I sit down and talk with Christine Schackinger to discuss her freelance SEO journey, as well as a unique situation she was in, in which one of her freelance clients had attempted to sue her for $10,000. She'll discuss this in more detail, as well as what her actual out-of-pocket expenses were at the end. Before we jump into this conversation, let's have a quick note from our sponsor, seochatter.com. Do you want to jump into SEO freelancing, but not sure you're good enough to make it work? At seochatter.com, you can get the expert training you need to succeed for free. SEO Chatter is one of the fastest growing sites in our industry that teaches every aspect of SEO. You'll find hundreds of free guides on keyword research, on-page optimization, link building, and more to help you maximize your website's rankings and traffic. Visit seochatter.com to see for yourself and click subscribe button to get your free SEO training gift. Go to seochatter.com today. Thanks again to our sponsor, seochatter.com. And now let's jump into this month's conversation. Hey, Christine, thanks again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So for those that don't know Christine, she has been in the SEO industry what feels like forever, you know, probably before I had joined and I've been around forever as well, but she's spoken at uh, most, if not all of the, the large conferences, any conferences that she hasn't spoken for, she's probably written articles that you've read. And, you know, she's definitely a fan favorite you know, on Twitter and the rest of the social media. So again, thanks for joining on Christine. Would love for you to just give a quick introduction on top of what I had just shared. Sure, that was very nice. Um, I didn't know I was a Twitter fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I started uh, longer than I care to remember, actually as a front-end designer developer before I got into SEO. And I was working for a company in Vegas and I was bored with my skill set. So I had read about this SEO thing, it was like 2004, 2005. And we were spending two or three million a year on Google clicks uh, for, you know, ads. And we weren't doing anything with SEO. So I asked my boss if I could do it. And uh, she said, sure, but this new agency we've been using uh, is doing it right now, but they've made some sort of error. If you can figure out the error, I'll let you do it. And I figured out the error. And so she let me do it. So that's how I got into SEO. So, and then I went, uh, worked SEO, I worked all the skill sets until about 2008, nine. When I went out on my own. So, uh, and then I still did uh, front end development and design and stuff too, but WordPress kind of killed anyone wanting to pay me to code their website. <laughs> so, so I just went full, almost full time SEO. I still do some of the other things uh, in small amounts, you know, for small clients, but it's primarily SEO. Well, and that's awesome. So, you had mentioned previously working for a company and kind of taking on the SEO before then. So was it literally one company, one role that included SEO, and then you went out to freelance, or did you have other like full-time SEO roles in between? Uh, you know what? Before I went out to freelance, uh, I didn't start freelancing as an SEO. So I started freelancing um, as a as just a, whatever project fit my skill set and would pay me for. Like my first one that. was <laughs> recoding the front end of um, superpages.com. So I recoded their um, HTML from like 50,000 lines to like 2,000 lines. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was like my first freelance project. So, but I think as a freelancer, often if you're a generalist, it's good because you can take on projects based on market. 
you know, so at the, yeah, at the time, SEO wasn't something that a lot of companies were paying people to do. And I wasn't like a rock star, you know, uh, like some of the guys like Bozer and, you know, Sugar Ray who were doing like affiliate marketing and like Black Hat and stuff. You know, I was just like, hey, I do this for you, but I can also do SEO. And they're like, cool. So, so I was actually, so I was actually working at a company when I went freelance. So I, I started in adding SEO as a skill set in 2004, 2005, and I cut my teeth on the Vegas hospitality industry. So it was a pretty um, aggressive place to start, which was good. So I learned a lot. Um, but then I became the director um, or whatever. It was a startup. So I had like multiple titles, but uh, for the build of a, a startup's website, which included everything from SEO to accessibility to, you know, proper development requirements, things like that. And then that environment burnt me out because I was working 100 hours a week, like sleeping in my chair and getting up at 6 a.m. I'm starting to work again at the office. Like that's how crazy it was. So uh, so I had gotten the super pages dot job and they um, when they went to pay me. Sorry, I'm probably elaborating too much here, but just real quick. So when they went to pay me, I quoted like 70 an hour and they're like the person I knew the person there who wanted to bring me on board. And he's like, they'll never hire you at that. And I'm like, what? That's like the standard rate for, you know, a contract gig at a company. And he goes, no, it's too cheap. It's like, they won't trust you. Put a one in front of that. And I'm like, what? A one in front of one? You want me to charge what? And a three so, digit hourly rate? No way. Yeah. Now it's normal, right? But back then I was like, what? So I did. And we settled around 135 an hour. And my boss was burnt out from that company. And he was not pleasant to work for anymore. And he was just really ugly one day. And, and I really liked the guy, but it was just the environment was just killing me. So I wrote my mentor and SEO and I said, hey, should I jump ship? And they're like, I can't tell you what to do, but you have that 135 hour you know, job right now. So it'd be a really good time to do it. So that's, <laughs> that's, I just jumped. Oh. I love it. So yeah. at that point, was that, was that jumping to, was that when you started doing the, that additional freelance work or were you just taking an hourly gig, but with the expectation that you're working 40 hours for them? No, I, I took it to, to jump. Yeah, sure. I took the gig and then, I knew that would give me like six months of um, money I could put in the bank because living in Vegas at the time was pretty inexpensive. And right. uh, and so I could use that to launch. I was not one who ever thought they would do consulting sure. or freelance. I thought I'd always work for a company. But when I had that opportunity, I was like, you know, maybe we should try this for a little while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because little quick story about myself. When I was in college, I remember they had just opened up like a new entrepreneurship like degree that you could get within the business school. And I remember walking by and like sticking my head in and just being like, ha, these guys are doofuses. Like we're going to start a company and do this. I'm going to go work for some company for 30 years and cash my check. So the fact that I turned around and now I'm a pretty big uh, proponent for working for yourself, you know, <laughs> it just shows that, you know, those are probably the classes that I should have been in. Who knows what they were learning or of what value they were. It's, yeah. It would be kind of like taking SEO courses in college. It's only going to add so much value. Yeah, true. Right. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of a, a tangent there, but just very appropriate given what you're saying. Um, but Christine, so, you know, so you've had this all these experiences, you truly were a Jill of all trades. You know, you had been able to do everything from the coding to SEO when it first started. But can you tell us, you know, what precautions did you take once you were making that decision to become a consultant or freelance? And were you saving in advance for that? Or did you kind of just jump into it and go crazy? 
Um, contrary to my contradictory to my entire personality, I just jumped into it and tried to swim. So I, I, asked, I wouldn't advise that's the best way to do it. I'm so defensive of my approach. I was, I mean, I ended up getting canned, and that's why I had to do it on my own. But I've been very defensive in building up those savings blocks. So as I keep talking to more and more people, I love hearing just the guts that these people have to choose you know people sometimes will say nick i can't believe you did it. it's like whoa, whoa 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 let's be clear i kind of got pushed out of a window and then i landed in like the freelance world but there are people like christine you know that are saying to heck with you i'm gonna do this on my own so well, you keep if, if i didn't have that contract i never would have done it so it was a six week 135 40 hours a week contract which meant i knew i was covered at least for three to six months if i didn't get anything else Right, I knew I, my bills were covered. So um, I do always tell people when people ask, like, what's the number one thing I need to know about going out on my own? And people give them all sorts of learning advice and stuff like that. And I'm saying, no, uh, I won't say the swear word because I don't know where this is shown, but the old Howard Stern, have your FU money. Yep. Because you have to be able to choose your clients. And yep. if you don't have that money in the bank and you know your bills are covered for the next at least two or three months, then you take clients that you shouldn't take because you're desperate. And those are the worst clients always to have. They use up all your time and your resources and stuff like that. So. Christine, I love that you said that. I've had a blog post that's three quarters of the way done. And I'll just say it's called like the benefits of fuck you money. And yeah. it's not about, as you know, it's not about millions of dollars in the bank. What it is is enough to where you can say no to somebody because mm -hmm. it's going to be a beneficial or an additive to your life versus subtracting. And, you know, the first probably year and a half, I didn't have, I did say yes to a lot of things. I even have my own story, you know, about a bad experience because I told someone no, and they convinced me <laughs> to say yes. And it ended up being very much not worth my time. And I gave them half his money back. Um, yeah. I only had <laughs> experience so far freelancing, but honestly, like now, you know, when you have that FU money, uh, the ability to say no really just empowers you to take the best you know clients and you're not competing on dollars because once you yeah. start competing on dollars you've lost the race as well in my opinion so thank exactly. you exactly you can you can charge what you're worth and not have to to take some job for half of what you know you should be paying that you're resenting by the end because you know you never should take it in the first place so. absolutely if you're gonna ever um cut costs do it because you really are just like um, you know, super into a particular company or a nonprofit, yeah. you know, where you're going to be able to do some good for this world. It's like, don't do it just because someone else is being cheap and wants to make more money off of your services. Also something else a uh, boss told me at the time, which I ignored my first couple of years in, which I do not anymore is never do work for free. Yeah. Because if you want to give somebody your work because you believe in the nonprofit or something great at the very end, when you give them the bill, and then you say, I take off a hundred percent. He's like, but never give it for free. And I ignored that as new. I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give this for free. I'll do this little extra work for free, which always turned into a disaster because it was never properly vetted out or, you know, requirements weren't done well or whatever. But never give work for free. Just don't do right. it. It's, it's not an easy way into a client. It's an easy way into a bad client or a bad client relationship because even the nicest people in the world, when they don't pay for the work, there's something psychologically that makes the value of the work seem lower. So. And again, I, I don't know if you've read the book, Christine, but have you by chance read Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss? I, ha I haven't. It sounds like okay. I should. 
Well, so that's one of his things as well. And honestly, it was uh, Eli Schwartz who had told me to read that book. And I'm, oh, it, yeah, I know Eli. It, it's not his book, but his book is great too. But that was like the one thing when I talked to him. I'm not a huge reader myself, but he said if you're going to be freelance for any period of time, make sure you read it. And that's one thing that Alan says. He's like, it's okay to give your skill set away in right circumstance, but like don't do it for free as in you're not showing the value or heavily discount you know your offerings is like make the scope proportionate to where they want to reduce spend and right. it's because you know it's like if let's just say hypothetically you're charging a thousand dollars for a project and they say their budget is 500 don't just say you'll do it and do the full scope have them better understand what half the scope actually looks like yeah. and then at that point make them make the decision because more times than not they're going to go back and pay the original fee but a lot of people don't say that so i think that's just another one of those things like if you want to talk about like some some mantras or opportunities just to be like more powerful from a consulting standpoint you know it's like don't don't work for free or if you do make sure that you are communicating the value and don't take like a partial payment either take make it at like a donation you know, or charge full. And then that, that FU fund, it, it truly is the most powerful thing. And I don't, I can't speak for you, Christine, but I don't have a gold mine in my, my back pocket. I just, you know, have enough to be able to say no, which is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And then this one last thing I would suggest um, before I move on is um, uh, years ago, it's a very long, detailed, funky story on why I got stiffed on $13,000. But and included the criminal history of the person paying me, which I didn't know about. But anyway, um, they uh, I talked to my friend who worked at Cisco as a manager, you know, as a director. She's like, "Why are you getting postpaid?" And I go, "Well, that's how you always get paid, right?" She's like, "No," she goes, "You don't postpay, you get prepaid." And I'm like, "Prepaid? Like people are going to pay me ahead?" She goes, "Yes. If they're not willing to pay you ahead, you do not want them as a client." And I said, okay, and I've done that ever since. And now there's some things like an audit I might do half up front and half at the end because it's a very short time period. But there's no postpay. There's no paying me 90 days ahead away. Like if I companies like we have a 90 day pay frame, I'm like, well, then I'll start in 90 days because I'm not waiting for somebody to pay me. Because sometimes you think like it's a big company, so you're safe. I worked with one of the biggest companies in the world and it was a $2,000 payment and it took me 10 months of chasing it down to get the payment. So, um, so some people like hourly, I don't, but there are ways to do hourly on a prepay, like maximum hours. If we don't use them all, we'll run them all over for one month or something. But, uh, but prepaid retainers are really the way to go. Yeah. And Christina, I'm glad you brought that up too, because that's just another topic that we have yet to cover yet, either on the blog or this podcast, but you know, the idea of just like, how do you charge? You know, there's obviously yeah. the hourly, there's retainer, and then there's like value-based pricing too. You know, everybody obviously wants to get as close to value-based and as far away from hourly as humanly possible. But I think what you're mentioning, the prepay, postpay is a big conversation. I've even found myself getting stuck kind of in the middle. You know, I'll do a lot of um, bill halfway through the month. And if I don't get paid by the end of the month, I don't start the next month. But that still allows myself, that's what I personally am okay with potentially, and I'm giving air quotes right now, you know, losing. You know, yeah. it's what I feel comfortable doing it. And um, Christina, as you have alluded to, I know you've worked with large brands too, but I tend to focus more on enterprise level clients. And a lot of them have 
a lot of net um, payments that are just crazy. And by the way, those are totally negotiable. So always push those. But, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so there are times, you know, I've had net 45, but it says I'm going to, I told them I'm going to bill, you know, day one. You know, so I'm going to invoice you in advance. So even if I don't necessarily get paid before day one, you know, there's just my point being is that there's a lot of ways, ways to do it. Yeah. And, and, and I will do like if they say we're net 45 and they can't get accounting to change that, then we'll go ahead and um, we may start some of the preliminary stuff that doesn't take a lot of time and effort. But it's still I still won't start without the payment of at least the, at least the, on a new client, 70 percent down or Smart. on an existing client, 50 percent down. Yeah. Yep. No, and I like it. I think that's yeah. a really important. Christine, maybe we'll have to have a have you on the show again to talk about that. It's a yeah. Sorry, I probably got a little off. Course, yeah. No, no, no. I, I love that conversation. I'd love to dive more into it. But I think we have an equally as exciting conversation today because Christine knows here. But for everybody who's listening, I reached out to Christine based off of some recommendations she had given me that I flat out ignored. If I'm being completely honest. I had just started out as a freelancer and Christine and I happened to be in a group of individuals talking together. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it was one of those like COVID happy hours, you know, back when people used to actually do it. And everybody, including Christine, was being super nice talking to me about how uh, freelance life was going, you know, how, you know, how's everything going, you know, what questions do I have, anything they can do to be helpful. And what are, for some reason, we got into the conversation and Christine had asked, hey, do you have like errors and emissions insurance or any business insurance? And I said, no, and I'm kind of smug and thinking to myself, I only do good work and my clients love me. It's not gonna be an issue. And I don't think Christine had even told me the story at this point, but had mentioned, you know, that's just something you might really wanna consider. I personally ran into a situation where if I remember correctly, errors and omissions wouldn't have necessarily solved this one, but it was a legal issue that has popped up. And I, when I wanted to talk more about this topic, I naturally went to Christine to see if she'd be willing to one so I could publicly kind of uh, flog myself for being arrogant and smug because I <laughs> absolutely went and got insurance shortly after she had told me back in the day. Um, but I think there's a big story here to be able to um, share with the listeners here. So Christine, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Will you share us a little bit of what <laughs> sure. you had a client? You know, did they really sue you? How did this work? Yeah, no, this wasn't an SEO con. This was a website build client, design and build. And uh, I had gotten that company I left, you know, with the jumped into freelance. Uh, it was not, it was probably about a year after that. So I had his super duper $600 an hour contract that he had given me if I ever needed it. Uh, and so I used that super duper 600 hours super contract, like 30 pages. And uh, in that contract, it said, if you were not giving me what I needed to complete the project and I made X communications over X time, then I could walk away from the project. And this was someone who was just extremely difficult to work with. And uh, they were totally unorganized. They didn't know what they wanted. They weren't giving me the things I needed. And I had waited, it was 45 or 60 days the next part remember back then i wasn't doing prepay so i was doing paid on completion of sections of the site so i couldn't get the payment because we weren't completing because she wasn't giving me the stuff i needed to do the next portion. for one second regardless yeah. whether you do the prepay or postpay never have it be tied to anything where it's completion on a customer's action you know whether it be a migration or an audit or anything like this because i think where you're going at is yeah well 
it's really true. All my audits are due on five days after delivery. Delivery, yep. Me too. Yeah, nothing else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was new. I didn't understand all those things that people will do because I'm like a decent person. I think people will be decent, and you know, of course, it's not always the case. So um, the original contract was like for seventy five hundred or something, and I dropped her, and she didn't have a website because I dropped her, and I couldn't keep waiting for you know payment. I needed to get new work, and uh, so. When I did that, I think she was afraid I was going to sue her for the remaining payment because I had done all that work up to that point. I was just waiting for her for the, for the payment. And so she sued me for $10,000 in district court. And so in small claims, you don't need a lawyer. Now, small claims is basically just a magistrate. You go in front of them, you present both sides of the case, and they make a determination. When you go over 10000 in my state, every state's different, now you're in district court. And you can represent yourself, but you're stupid if you do, and you have to get a lawyer. So uh, I got a lawyer, and uh, the the fee was going to be about ten thousand dollars by the time we were done. And if I lost, I could also owe the person ten thousand dollars. And so, fortunately for me, I keep excessive documentation. Uh, something I learned about back when I worked in corporations and a friend always told me, make sure you document everything. So if you ever have a problem with HR or a VP or somebody who never deals with you, that you can produce everything you need related to a project. So I brought in the documentation. The lawyer's like, oh, my gosh, you worked with her, what, three months? How do you have this much documentation? But I had everything we communicated. I summarized every phone call we had and, and sent it back to her. Um, I had every email, you know, and it's really important. That's the biggest thing you can do to protect yourself is have that documentation and when things are done in phone calls not recorded summarize what you said and send it back to them and ask them to like reply that they received it so that that way you can prove in court you did tell them this they did get that information so uh so anyway so i wind up in district court and i'm like I, it wasn't an original quote from the lawyer of ten thousand. it just was kept going and um unfortunately in all my documentation i had the e-facts of the contract and the e-facts and the contract had the dates on the headers from the printout, right? Well, she had for she had fraudulently changed the contract after sending it to her, and no. they could yeah, and because hers didn't have the e-facts headers, they knew that it wasn't the real contract. So, I got very fortunate that the lawyer took that to the judge, and he dismissed the entire case because you can't base the case on a fraudulent piece of evidence, and that's what she was doing. Unfortunately, in the state of Nevada, the only way to get your money back is to go into court and have it heard. And the lawyer's like, I would probably win, but we could get a bad judge and you may not win. Do you have another $10,000? Because that's what's probably going to cost. You know, and I can charge her my fees if we win. But if not, you're out $10,000, $20,000. Right. The lawyer can pay it regardless. We yeah. Yeah. Christine. <laughs> exactly. So she was really honest with me, you know, and, and uh, I made the decision I would eat the $10,000. But that $10,000, remember that contract I had and I put all that money away? That mm -hmm. was my, that was my FU money. Right? Yeah. Uh, okay. she, she took all my FU money. So after, yeah. after that happened, I had to take whatever client I could get. And there were some really not good clients in there, it really stressed me out and were very difficult to work with. And, but but the point about that is what I learned from it was one documentation is awesome because had I not had that documentation, had I not used e-facts, had I not made sure there was something with timestamps on it with the important pieces of information, then I would have lost. 
right? So she had a lawyer. She was, her boyfriend right. was a lawyer, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, that's she's she not doing. actually paying for her legal fees like you yes. are. So she wanted to charge me the money to pay somebody else to build a new website. Gotcha. Was that was the one clarification I was going to ask. So yeah. she was basically claiming that probably because of the not deliverable, because you dropped her as a client, given your contract and what was stipulated in there, you could do. She basically was saying because she was out of that time, you know, a uh, website, it was going to cost her 10 grand to build a website. Mm -hmm. And now this is your cost for yeah. choosing a dropper. Exactly. But on... But the other thing my lawyer told me too at the end of this was, you know that contract I said, the six hundred dollar an hour lawyer contract, thirty pages. She's like, don't ever do this again. And I was like, why? She goes, everything in here is something to sue on, every single thing. So she's wow. like, she's like, make sure you have like in a, a statement of work, like you know due dates, things like that, as attached to a contract. Make your contract as simple as possible. Because if it's more than two or three pages, it's too long. Um, you don't want to give them things to sue on. And if they write it, then it benefits you because there's a thing in the law about whoever writes a contract obviously is writing it in their benefit. Right. So, so there's a, a there's a little bit of leeway for you in there for there to be error. But so that was the other big thing I learned. So I have never had a contract that I've written since then that's more than like two pages and then a statement of work that's attached to it that tells them what's going to be done. And Christina, I, I love that because, you know, this just shows, again, someone on my end, you know, I've been doing SEO for a long time, but I've done the business, the freelance side of it for, you know, going on three years now because I literally just got done talking with my lawyer that's like $450 an hour. And I sent him my two-page uh, agreement, which is basically a, a um, scope plus a small standard, you know, an SLA, service level agreement. And I told him, I was like, you're probably going to laugh at this. It's kind of a hodgepodge of some agreements I found online and some other friends that I have. But look at it. Like, tell me where I'm causing issues. And he literally responded and said, this is fine. He goes, this is what you need to do. He goes, whenever you create your scope, your goal is to make sure that you have the least amount of requirements and like deadlines. And your customers should always be going for an extensive list. And that's where you're going to win or lose, quote unquote, you know, within your agreement. So it, it's really interesting how that works, because I think a lot of us coming from the business side, you know, we see these $600 an hour contracts, you know, they're 800 pages in length. And we assume that that's what you need. And you're kind of, you know, you're you're pretending until you know, you're fake until you make it, you know, as a freelancer or a consultant. So. You know, that was a, a very interesting, you know, experience on my end. It's great to hear Christine, you had <laughs> She's like, no. The other thing I tell anybody, especially if you're new and you don't have much money, is you can go to a lawyer and ask for a consulting hour. So you can go to them and lay out your issue and they will give you advice as whether, you know, what you need to do. Um, do you need them? What your next steps are? Things like that without fully hiring them with a retainer. So in this That's case, fine. I needed to fully hire because we went to district. But if this was in small claims, I might have just paid her, you know, 250 an hour, uh, one or two hours to get her legal advice on what I needed to do in court. And the other thing I tell people is the law is your friend if you know what it is. The law is not your friend if you don't. So if you're in a situation where someone is suing you like I was, do not attempt to do it yourself. There are things that she told me that I didn't know I needed to do. And I can't remember all the details right now, but I know there are certain things like with emails and things I had to produce that the courts will accept. And it's usually not common sense. So you're like, right. oh, I can do it. It's not that big a deal. You know, I have my emails, whatever. 
But if you don't have that lawyer saying, no, this is how you have to present it. This is what they need to see. This is what they need to know. This is what the judge will listen to. And, and you can get that from a consultation if it's not a big deal case, you're in small claims or something. Um, if you're in a district like I was, and every state it's different, what's in small claims, what's in district, it's a, usually a dollar amount. Uh, you can also go to the lawyer though and get a consultation and they can tell you whether you really need to retain them or not. Usually they make enough money that they're not like, hey, I'm going to get this freelancer's cash, right? <laughs> like, they'll usually be pretty honest with you and say, you know, you really don't need me. Um, you can have me right. review your contract and, you know, you can have me review this or I'll advise you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, or they'll say, you know, we're going to have to go to court. So you're probably going to want a lawyer. So. Right. But, and, and that's amazing advice. And Christine, you might agree with me here. I think as a service provider, especially on the SEO side of things, we know that those details are so important. You know, even things like an XML sitemap, you know, we think it's pretty straightforward that yeah. every page should go in there until it's, you know, doesn't include a canonical tag or it's, you know, but things that, you know, we as practitioners and people who are even listening, you know, they're pretty obvious, but I assume that's kind of how it is on the legal side and pretty much any other niche that we, you know, mm -hmm. aren't experts in. So if there's one thing that I've learned to appreciate as I've been going out and charging for my skill set is making sure that I'm not trying to do things that, you know, I'm just not, you know, and have any expertise in and legal yeah. would absolutely be one of those. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing, like you said, is to get emissions insurance, errors in emissions. So it's a little hard to sue in our industry based on you made an SEO error because it's a black box and they're never going to be able to get Google to tell them what that is. <laughs> but you could, let's say I did uh, an audit for a very large um, uh, investment firm in the country and they wanted to see about acquiring a site and that they decided not to. and six months later that site got hit by a core update it was one of the ones that were talked about and i had said that they could be in the audit but let's say i didn't catch that and they purchased it and then they come back on me and say part of what we purchased um this on is your audit and you did not tell us they were subjected to a core update issue and that can be made a case of in court because core update issues are talked about by Google, right? And there's analysis right. of them. And, and so if I missed obvious things, so errors and emissions insurance will help cover any chance of someone coming back on you for something like that. Well, and this in itself could be a whole nother topic. And I never thought about it till now is like when you are doing an audit or an assessment of a type of site, you know, what kind of things, you know, should be in there just to kind of protect us as SEOs? Because I mean, like you yeah. said, you know, we can't do anything about algorithm updates. I mean, even core updates, you know, we kind of have an idea at the highest level, you know, what could or could not be impacted. But really, it's just until that next component that we're not yet thinking about <laughs> you know, part of it. So that'd be interesting. But I, I won't go into that today again. You know, I will have to have you on for a third time to talk about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, yeah, one thing I do put is at the end of all my documentation, all my audits is a disclaimer yep. that basically I can only know as much as we know. This is my best, basically, educated guess. And Google's a black box. So if it is incorrect, you cannot blame me. I mean, basically. Nope. So I'm super glad because my, my next question was going to be basically from all this experience you know, how has it impacted, you know, your free, freelance work, legal contracts, insurance, yada, yada, yada. And and you kind of stole the one that I have, you know, within my two-page agreement, I do have a line item. And that's the only thing I told my 
my lawyer, I said, you can change anything in here, but I will not have anybody sign this or I will not work towards it unless this is involved. And it's more or less what you had said, Christine. It basically says, you cannot hold me accountable for organic search performance based on the fact that it's a proprietary algorithm that Google yep. or other search engines will not display or disclose. So it's, it's a little bit of a burden, but more so on the people signing the contract, you know, the customers, because they're basically saying, we're going to pay you regardless, whether you do yep. a good job or not. But from our perspective, I always liken our job to kind of like the, the weather people, you know, she could be talking about how it's going to be raining tomorrow. And we all know, at least here in Minnesota, if they say it's going to rain, it's, it's not going to rain. If they say it's going to be a sunny, beautiful day, it's going to be a hot, muggy, you know, <laughs> with, with rain. There's just no way that you can guarantee those type of recommendations. So um, on just kind of building off of that tangent, Christine, just curious, again, with all of these experiences and appreciate you sharing your story, you know, mm -hmm. what other type of um, things would you do what have you done now to kind of protect yourself and what would you recommend to other individuals that either are freelancing or would want to freelance in the future uh back to the original thing make sure you have your a few money because one if you ever need a lawyer and you have money <laughs> to pay one uh but also because then you choose your clients mm -hmm. and one of the ways i vet clients is i don't do any seo long-term work without an audit first now this won't work for everybody that's how i do it in that audit time, I determine whether they're a difficult client, whether they're a litigious client, whether they're easy to work with, hard to work with, clear on communication. You know, are they sticklers for what they said and ignoring maybe they didn't, whatever it happens to be. So it gives me a really good feel for the client. And if I don't feel that the client is a good fit and one that could cause me troubles just in general, you know, bad headaches every day because of the way they handle things, um, I just don't take them on as a full-time client. So we do the audit and, I, and not everyone I haven't taken on as a full-time client is for that reason. A right. lot of clients, there's just not a fit for me and the work that they need. Mm -hmm. But that being said, it's a really good way. If you can find something you can do, a preliminary effort that you can get paid for, don't do it for free, that allows you to assess the client relationship, the client themselves, then that helps because then you don't get in a situation with someone who's likely to sue you, mm -hmm. right? Because that's a big part of it is people who are likely to see you. Most people aren't litigious in nature, but right. there are people that are. And so you'll know from working with that client, are they really just a, we call, I call it a PETA, pain in the arse. <laughs> but there's a PETA fee. If you're gonna be a difficult client, you're gonna cost more because you're gonna make me do a lot more work for the, the same result. So. And Christine, I, I will speak for myself, but I bet I can almost guarantee this will be true for you. It's always the client that you make an exception or cut your rate or do something as a favor. Every single time it's them, yes. like without a doubt. The, the clients I have paid with the highest retainers, the things that are probably even the, on just the high end, like the highest of high, I have never had anyone ever be a pain yeah. in the opposite level. It's yeah. always no, it's very true. work on the minimum. It's very true. And I had, uh, I've had that issue. Yeah. It's like the stuff I did for free, the extra mm -hmm. stuff to help to be a good you know, resource for them yep. always blew up in my face, always blew up in my face. So. Well, and I think, like you said, it's, it's really tied to, you know, that perceived value. I think you and I think logically, if I'm doing this for free or very discounted, that your expectations should be really low. Therefore you almost can't be unhappy. And what I try to explain to a lot of people, at least in the freelance world too, is like, 
you also very likely don't want to work with people where your SEO investment is like their entire marketing investment because they simply just can't wait for SEO to work. And those are the people that are going to get really upset about their two, 300 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month. It's just SEO is not the right solution for them at that time. And a lot of SEOs, whether it be agencies or consultants are really bad and they'll continue to sell that. And that's just a really bad relationship for both sides. It's going to be a lose-lose for everyone. It is. And, the, and those are the type of people you just can't please. You know, I'm, I try to be as frictionless as possible for clients. I work with them on all sorts of levels and they need to change the engagement. We change it. I don't even, don't even have long-term contracts with most of them. They can get out at months, months end with 30 days notice, you know? And so I don't have much friction with clients. It's very rare, but when I do, it's always that kind of situation. So. Christina, I do love that you brought out like the out clause. Cause that was the other, the only other thing that was contentious with my lawyer. I, um, he said literally you don't have to change it this is fine make sure you keep your scope as limited as possible and he also says you need to um remove this out clause of like 30 to 60 days he's like you want people to get you know to sign this contract and they owe you legally the money and i said i completely understand what you're saying and if i was probably a better quote-unquote businessman to maximize dollars that would be the case but i have no interest in working with individuals that don't want to work with me so I do the okay. same thing. I do require a, a contract. Most of the time I'll do like six months at a pop, but I think only for like one client and I put them at like 60 days, but most of them I have at 30 days, just because simply if this isn't working, you know, I, I don't want to work for you if, it's, if you don't want to work with me and vice versa. That just doesn't yeah, work. exactly. And I do have some longer term contracts with like the migration project I just did because that's going to take six months to a year and actually turned into almost two years. So if dropping me in the middle would cause a bad result for them and for, for, you know, them ever working with me again, cause it wouldn't go the way they thought it should. So I do have some like thir three months or six months, but there are SEO companies. Like I've met some of their clients, not knowing I was an SEO and they're like, we are stuck in this two year relationship. We hate these people. We don't <laughs> ever work with them, but we can't get out of the contract. And like I said, I don't want to be that person. Well, why do I want to work with you if you hate, working with me, but I do need notice that you're leaving so I can replace you. So 30 days, 60 days notice is fine. I also find it makes the relationship easier because they just know they can get out if the things don't work. But right. if it is something like I'm doing a site recovery, well, then there might be a six month contract because we know the update has to run again before, you know, before they will see any results. So there are, there are some time limits, but try not to trap anybody into one and like you said all those also have like 30 or 60 day outs after an initial period of like three months or something yeah i mean it's just like i think education is one of the biggest opportunities we have just mm -hmm. on this seo space i think there's a lot of agencies and you know freelancers that make their money by quote unquote trapping people and you know it sounds like for you that's not really how you want to be known that's not how i want to be known so yeah. just, I think that's just one way from the legal side. Again, you know, it goes away a little bit. That's more us trying to be good people and protecting what the best interest for our clients. Um, but going back to the other side, when it comes to protecting a freelancer or even say an agency owner, you know, we talked about the, the FU money, you know, from the legal side, just making sure that we have the, the basis down, you know, if you can get a, a simple scope, great. But um, let's touch base real quick just on the, the insurance again, because I think this goes full uh, circle from, you know, here's Nick thinking he's doing pretty good on his own year one, rolling his eyes at Christine and, and one other woman that was kind enough to help me. 
um, saying, you know, you might want to just invest in this. Um, curious on, on your perspective, is there any sort of insurance or business coverage that you typically invest in or would recommend for somebody that's freelancing? No, but just because I carry a lightweight of overhead, so the emissions and errors really covers because of what we do. If I was doing website builds, that might be different because there's whole sorts of, like my dad helps design hospitals, sure. and there's all sorts of things he can be sued on based on a design error, right? So that would be different if I was still building websites, it'd be different. But with SEO, you know, it's a black box. There's limited things that they can sue on. So as long as you didn't make an error or an omit something that needed to be done, then there's really not much ground, legal ground, unless it's just failure to perform. But Absolutely. there's no business coverage for that. There's no business coverage for <laughs> to perform. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that yeah. kind of goes hand in hand with people that want to sue, they want to sue at that point. Yeah, exactly. If people are litigious and coming after you, they're litigious and coming after you. There's not, not a whole lot you can do. There's just limited insurance. And the question is, um, do the clients you have, are they that type? Now, if I was dealing with like the massive, whatever fund manager, I don't know if they're hedge funds, I forget, but anyway, they're very big name buying companies. And I was doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. I would probably have much heftier insurance because they have a lot of lawyers and they're right. very wealthy and they could sue me out of existence. So I would carry more weight. But generally the clients I'm dealing with, they're not interested in suing. They would just fire me if they didn't like me, let alone you know, so I think it also depends on the type of clients you're working with. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you did nail it. You know, I, in a previous full-time job, worked for a marketing company that did um, uh, SEO exclusively for lawyers. And so I've spent many, 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 many hours talking to lawyers and, you know, legal and Sue is their middle name and yeah. those are people. So it's like, for me personally, I know a lot of great lawyers. I know a lot of agencies that do great work for lawyers. I don't take them. It's just that's not worth it, you know, when you want to tell them bad information or be controversial or say no. I'm just not interested in the back pocket card being, I'm going to sue you. Yeah. Uh, I do think on the insurance side, from my perspective, my personal insurance, I get like $500,000 of coverage for like 60 bucks a month or 49 bucks, whatever it is. And I think it's just more of, I can't recall if we talked about this in the interview or if we talked about it offline, but just even with audits, you know, if somebody were to ever say that something were omitted or they decide that something, you know, should have been in there that isn't and now they're hit by a penalty. Again, I think really back to what you had said, Christine, I think it's talking about the type of clients and people that you're working with. They aren't going to sue you or not sue you because you have it. But I do think it's worthwhile. And I will say I do actually have one client and it wasn't a big deal for me because I already had it, but they stipulated that the only way they would work with me is if I had an errors and omissions coverage. And we kind of went back and forth because naturally they asked for a lot of money <laughs> in that coverage. And I kind of just said, this is what I got, take or leave it. And we settled. Um, but, you know, it may also just open up some opportunities for some larger companies if they are truly looking to um, provide themselves as much safety as possible as well. That touches on a point too that I don't know any personally, I don't know personally anyone who's had this happen, but I did do some reading on it. Like what amount do you get? Well, you think I should get the most possible, right? No, because like, let's say that hedge fund bought this company and they went down and they want to recoup some of their loss. They know you have this insurance, they'll come after you, right? So there's a balance between like coverage and target coverage where if you have too much coverage the company may decide they want to recoup some of their loss through you so um so 
generally they advise one million or less. Yep. And in, in Arizona emissions for for the kind of stuff we do, like the, like for my dad, I think his policy is in the millions, but he's helping to build hospitals. That's a different story. And that would make perfect uh, sense because I think the company that I am currently working with, when we were doing that, they were asking for two million, and I had five hundred, but I thought I only had two fifty. So I went back and said, I'm willing to walk away from this deal. I have 250, which should be more than enough to account for anything I would possibly happen, especially since you have like an in-house SEO team. Um, oh, but, yeah, definitely. But I said, however, I, I understand that and I am willing to amend this to have that be a requirement. But I literally did say for me personally, it was that was kind of my FU part. You know, it's like yeah. I didn't need to take that. I didn't have to go back and forex my by errors and omissions and they came back and said, okay, we can make that work. So I guess it's just something to talk about, you know, Christine, you're saying maybe you don't need the errors and omissions. I'm saying it's kind of a cheap, you know, backup. You do. No, you should have it. You should have it. I'm just saying that you don't necessarily want to have the most coverage possible because yes, that could yes, be a, yeah. make you a target. You, know. uh, you should sense. definitely have it. I'm just saying that outside of errors and omission, you probably don't need a lot of other business insurances um, unless it's like, based on you having people in your office. Right. Yeah. So. Fantastic. So two more questions just to wrap this up. We've already talked and you gave a lot of good information for individuals that want to become like aspiring freelancers or people that are maybe even freelancing part time. But are there any specific like books, courses, newsletters that you would recommend people checking out? You know, actually, I don't have any good information on that. What I would say would be find um, leaders in the industry and see who they have recommended, um, you know, as far as freelancing, I don't mean SEOs. Um, right. But unfortunately, uh, most of it is just, I learned along the way by asking people. So like I went, and that's a really good way too, is ask other people who've been in it longer than you. So mm -hmm. I was at a conference, we were at the Google dance back when they had those. And I told a friend I was really having a hard time. I had all these clients that were really difficult. And, and he's like, uh, you're working with small businesses, right? And I go, yeah, how'd you know? He goes, Seen, they pay it out of their bank accounts. Every dollar they give you, they want a flaming young for a hamburger price. Nope. He says, not that you, and he goes, we want to help small businesses. We want to help good people. We all know how it is, but you have to pick your small business clients really carefully. And he right. was right. Like, not that you shouldn't help small businesses. You should, if that's what you love to do. But just make sure you pick them, pick those carefully because the big company is just coming out of an account that they're given and they give you the money, right? So that's why you like the big ones you said are so easy. They're like we hired you to do something you did it here's the money but when yep. it's a small business you, you have to educate them a lot there's a lot of things you have to do so so it just uh i, I would talk to people because once he told me that and i realized that was my big problem i started being much more careful about the small businesses and i started adding larger clients to balance out having problems with the smaller businesses so, i think really good advice and just to kind of wrap up what you had said i think just reaching out and talking to people most mm -hmm. people are willing to jump on, even if it's just 10, 15 minutes of your time. You know, if you have just enough time to ask two or three pointed questions, and maybe one of those is like, who else do you know that you think might help me? I mean, that's basically how I built my entire SEO career, my network. It was trying mm -hmm. not to beg. It was just yeah. like, hey, can I openly ask you for some advice? No judgment one way or another. And who else do you think I should know? And yeah. everyone, especially in our industry, is so nice and so kind. Like you can go very far if you're willing to pick up the phone or write an email. 
I totally agree. And that's why conferences are so great when they're going to have them in person again now is if you can get to a conference in two, three days, you can talk to so many different people and you can even find maybe a mentor for yourself. You definitely ask a lot of questions at the bar at night when everyone's having a drink or something, you know, drink soda. You don't have to drink beer or anything, but you know, when everyone's there socializing. Uh, but that's how I'm the same way. I found out everything by talking to other SEOs who are more experienced than me and listening to what they had to tell me. So. And it might sound silly, but the amount of people that I've ended up having like great conversations with that maybe hadn't talked to or known in advance, like I'll pull out my phone and just make sure like, hey, is this you on LinkedIn? And I'll follow or <laughs> on, on Twitter, like just because it's people that I want to make sure that I'm connected with, you know, even sure. if it's just in six months ago, you know, you never know. Sometimes it's liking a couple tweets or, you know, making a comment on LinkedIn and you never know when they go to a new company or they have a new boss. It's like, those are the people that are going to come around and they're going to send you some of the best business too. It's yes, not exactly. your SEO rankings. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I actually, uh, confession, don't have a website. All my businesses referral. So, yeah. See, she's just, <laughs> it's all referral. But no, I spend a lot of time on my website and I would say 2% of it. <laughs> the, the value of it is for when someone is Googling my name and tries to, needs a Pretty contact. Much. But yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with you. It's it's funny given um, what we are selling as a service and the the reward, right? Yeah, I'm like, well, the website's another client, and I'd rather work with ones that definitely pay. So <laughs> yeah, you never know if yourself is gonna actually pay. Those are the worst. Yeah, Your boss, exactly. <laughs> exactly, we're terrible. <laughs> okay, see, thank you so much for joining us today. For everyone who's listening today, how can they best get in touch with you, whether it be LinkedIn or Twitter or email? LinkedIn is probably the best way. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't have, like I said, I don't have a website. I am actually going to put one up this year with a big disclaimer that this isn't meant for SEO. It's just a flat, you know, just so you can land on it. It's a business card. But uh, yeah, it's probably the best way. If LinkedIn is the best way. Or you can contact me on Twitter. My LinkedIn is on Twitter. So, Perfect. but I'm, I'm the only me on the internet. So I'm really not hard to find. There's no other me. <laughs> And I'll make sure to include both of those links and we'll come back and update it once she gets that website or landing page even live. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Thank you again so much for joining us. And thank we'll you. See you next time. Bye bye. I appreciate it.